Napa know-how. A Napa guy knows more isn't always better. Unless we're talking about full-size vans. These beasts do more than get you from A to B. They have so much space a man can live in it. With shag carpeting, waterbed, and a sweet lava lamp, these mobile abodes have all the comforts of home. With quality parts and plenty of Napa know-how, you can keep the original tiny house running longer, stronger. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Renee Stillman. She is the president of the Stillman Family Foundation. Their mission is to help families with children diagnosed with a permanent disability participate in community, recreational, or everyday experiences as a united family. The foundation also supports events to benefit cerebral palsy, education, and activities. Renee is also the author of Heaven Sent and Bent, Becoming a Mother of Strength. The book tells her story of a house full of imperfect children and grandchildren and about her younger son, TJ, born perfect on the outside. However, the inside of his body was damaged by cerebral palsy and is wheelchair-bound. Renee and I will be having a conversation about her life's mission and how to use faith, humor, and inspiration to help mothers who struggle with life's challenges. Good morning, Renee. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much, Johnny. That was a great introduction. Thank you. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me this morning. I am looking forward to learning more about your life's journey and your wonderful, wonderful mission. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Okay. Well, I don't want to bore your listeners, but basically <laughs> I'm a, a Midwestern gal born, you know, in uh, right near Chicago and grew up with uh, lots of cousins and wonderful aunts and uncles and um supportive family, which doesn't really give you a lot to, uh, you know, write books about. It seems like those that, are, that grow up with more struggles have more interesting books, but I had a great childhood, and uh, my family moved. I, I, I would say probably the most traumatic thing that ever happened to me was my family moved me my senior year in high school to uh, the Pacific Northwest, and, um, but it turned out being the greatest thing ever because I met my future husband and, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. gave me some great opportunities and a chance to see another part of the country. And um, so I, uh, that's kind of where my adulthood started. Very, very interesting. One of the things you did is to join the U.S. Navy. So what makes you decide to do that? Well, you know, interestingly enough, um, I always wanted to travel, and mm. I so I decided that after high school I would become a flight attendant. Uh, you know, back in those days they were called uh, stewardesses, and mm-hmm. uh, it was a very romantic uh, occupation. And I totally idealized what that would be, and wanted to travel and wear a great uniform, and I just thought it would be so exciting. So. There was a program at a college in um, southern Utah, Dixie College, it was called at that time. Now, remember, this is back in the 70s. And mm-hmm. um, they had a program where you could study and train to become a flight attendant. And so I had every intention and did all the paperwork, and, and that was my plan after high school. But the reality was, you know, um, you have to pay for college. And uh, mm-hmm, I came mm-hmm. from a great, hardworking, middle-class family, and uh, there was no college savings, for I don't think, for kids back in the 70s. And um, when it came time to actually finance that dream, um, it got down to, how am I going to do that? And mm-hmm. uh, the reality was, I have uh, two aunts who served in the military during World War II. And um, I grew up with those lovely women. They were a great influence in my life. 
And so when the idea of going to college didn't feel like it was going to work out, I thought, well, maybe I'll join the Navy like my aunts did and see the Mm -hmm. world that way and wear a great uniform (laughs) that way. So I went down to the recruiting office and talked to a recruiter and and um, I was very, very fortunate to have a an honest recruiter who uh, really told me what it would be like and set out the program for me. And um, and that's kind of how uh, the whole thing got started. So my uh, you know my mom and my dad were not in the military themselves, but all of my mom came from a a large family. There were eight children in her family, and almost all mm-hmm. of her brothers and sisters and her father all served in the military. Um, so it was very common, and so it was very. Um, my family was very welcoming and accepting of the idea. It wasn't mm-hmm. a foreign idea for them. Very, very interesting. The generation, and I guess even right now, well, maybe perhaps it's a little bit different now. But back then, the way to college is to mow lawn on the weekends. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we were really aware of it back in those days of some of the programs that are out there to help kids go to college and yeah. and um, you know. And I think because I did come from a hardworking family, we were kind of taught to be independent. And if you can't do it yourself. Figure out something else you're going to do. So that's kind of the mentality that I was, you know, grew up with and and learned. I understand. That's wonderful. So, what got you to be interested in photography? Well, you know, that's another. It's it's interesting as the the great thing about age is you can look back on your life and really reflect on, um, you know, how a plan was kind of set up for you. And I really feel mm-hmm. as though. Um, uh, um, that Heavenly Father was looking after me and really guiding me and supporting me on my the choices that I was making. And when it came time um, to decide what I wanted to do in the Navy, um, again, I had an honest recruiter, and he gave me all of the options, and I thought about what would be a fun thing to do. And Mm -hmm. photography wasn't something that it wasn't a hobby that I had in high school or anything like that, but it sounded the most um, interesting. I was, I I wanted to learn more about it. So uh, we said, what the heck, let's do photography. It kind of checked box A, B or C. And so, (laughs) um, but the, the, the fascinating thing about that was he, my recruiter, um, I signed up for a three year commitment uh, for the military Mm -hmm. And he put in my contract that photography school was the agreement. I was going to go to a photography school, and then I was going to serve in the photo lab in the military. And he put that in my contract. And so when I got to basic training, you know, after you're through with your basic training, they take Mm -hmm. you in and you start filling out what they call your dream sheet, which is, you know, well, now that we've got you, in the military, what would you like to do? And I said, oh, I already have that figured out. I'm my recruiter. I'm going to go to photography school. And they went, oh, no, no, you have to be uh, enlisted for four years to get a guaranteed mm-hmm. school and a guaranteed uh, position. And I said, gosh, that's not what my recruiter told me. And so they went back and looked at my contract, and they came back, and they said, boy, you are one lucky girl because it is here in the fine, fine lines and the paperwork, and we do have to give you a guaranteed school because it's in your contract. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I watched other girls from my company come out mm-hmm. of, their, of their session in tears because oh. their recruiter had promised them this and promised them that. But, you know, they got down to basic training and, and it wasn't in their contract. So they were, oh, wow. you know, work in the mailroom or some other you know, yeah. place. So, you know, I was so fortunate because I went from um, basic training in Pensacola, Florida, to um, a year of intensive photography school. One of the best mm-hmm. photography schools that you can go to is the U.S. military school. So it was just wonderful. It was amazing. That's fascinating. Are those the wonderful memories you have in the Navy, or do you have some additional wonderful memories that you can share with us? Well, you know, going along with that story, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the, the people in charge telling me that, you know, I wouldn't be able to get a guaranteed schooling because I was only enlisted for three years, and then having, having that, be like, oh, well, I guess we have to. 
when it when I got through with my my training, my photography school, A, B, and C school, um, then it then you go through another process where you get to fill out where you would like to be stationed, and mm-hmm. um, so I thought, well, I'm I'm in Florida, but my family's in the Pacific Northwest, so. I'll put down maybe I would like to be stationed on Woodby Island. That would be close to home. and Or mm-hmm. maybe someplace in California. That would be fairly close to home. But you know where I'd really like to go? I'd really like to go to Japan. So mm-hmm. I actually put down the Navy base in Yokosuka, Japan, as my first choice. And then I put down Woodby Island and another place in California as my second and third choice. And when I turned in my paperwork, um, they just laughed. And they said, oh, honey. <laughs> You're, this is your first time, you know, you're a woman, you're mm-hmm. never going to get an overseas, you know, for your very first enlistment. And yeah. sure enough, very first place I went was Yokosuka, Japan. And so, you know, I went from a, a small town just south of Chicago to a small town in the Pacific Northwest to living on base in Japan. And it was amazing. I mean, it was absolutely an amazing experience. And I eventually um, rented a house and lived off base and really mm-hmm. had an opportunity to experience the culture, and um, which was another kind of, like, for example, when I got there, there were only 10 women uh, in my barracks. There were only 10 of us uh, on the base. And mm-hmm. now, again, this is 1973. Um, mm-hmm. So there were only 10 of us. And as I watched my entire uh, three years there, uh, it grew and it grew and it grew. But when I was there, uh, we had a brand new barracks and we each had our own room. And, and then I chose <laughs> to uh, go off base and rent a house. And as more and more women were, you know, being stationed over there, uh, mm-hmm. rules changed. And suddenly it was like, well, you're not allowed to live off base and you have to share a room and the barracks grew. And I just kind of Snuck past all of those things. It was just amazing to watch. As I as I mentioned, just I feel as though God's hand was just kind of placing mm-hmm. me in all of these positions and, and making sure that I was safe and and uh, that I had a good experience. Because I have to say, you know, when I uh, met a lot of the other women that were in the military, they came from some pretty hard backgrounds, and mm-hmm. military was not a choice for them like it was for me. It was a it was a die or join the military mm-hmm. type choice, you know, <laughs> and I was a little bit sheltered. I realized as I listened to some of their backstories of why they joined the military and why they were there and what their family mm-hmm. circumstances were. And, and uh, it was very, very eye opening. And it was a good experience for me to learn and to become friends with a lot of these women. And, and, um, but yeah, my, my experience living in Japan, I was just amazing. How much of a, a simulation did you do in terms of getting plugged in with the society and culture in Japan? Well, you know, as I mentioned, I had this amazing little house uh, right outside the base, uh, mm-hmm. tatami mats, you know, sleeping on a futon, and I would mm-hmm. get off work and ride my bike to to my house, and I would eat at some of the street vendors and and shopped, um, you know, and very, very frustrating. I must tell you, I, I'm a, a little bit of a clothes <laughs> horse and trying to find clothing that fit this American body, you know, <laughs> and I would try on clothes and go, okay, this is a large, I don't know. I can't believe this is a large, and, you know, but that was just absolutely fascinating. But, you know, um, I, I met my husband right before I went into the military and mm-hmm. it was interesting once again, um, we met at a dance uh, this summer after I graduated from high school and he Mm -hmm. had made a commitment to uh, serve a mission for our church and Mm -hmm. was committed to leave in October. And I had made this commitment of of the military service. And so I was scheduled to leave in January. So we dated throughout the summer and then we said our goodbyes and he left to to, uh, serve the Lord and I left to serve the country and we wrote (laughs) back and forth and, as we wrote as back and forth, we decided that we kind of wanted to get married. And so mm-hmm. um, I wrote him a letter uh, when I w- and I said, you know, when you come home from your mission, um, I have 30 days and we can either date for 30 days and then I'll come back to Japan and you can figure out what you're going to do in Oregon um, or we can get married. 
And mm-hmm. he said, okay, we'll get married. And so, <laughs> you know, we, I came home on my, from, uh, on leave and he came home and we got married and we both went back to Japan and he was mm-hmm. the first male dependent on the base at that time. So, um, that was fun. And he, he just got a job on base driving taxi and, we were mm-hmm. able to mm-hmm. start our first year of marriage uh, living you know, overseas, uh, away from family, and really gave us an opportunity to get to know each other and, um, and kind of start our lives together without anybody else telling us what we should be doing <laughs> or where we should be going. And so that was, that was really a fun way to start out our lives. I would think you guys have like a two-year honeymoon. Absolutely. It was, I mean, we didn't have to start that first year of marriage. You know how families get married and mm-hmm. the holidays mm-hmm. come about. It's like, well, are we going right. to go to your mom's or my mom's or your house? <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have to worry about that. We were clear over <laughs> in Japan, so we were able to do, you know, spend that first year really, like you say, the best honeymoon and, you know, really getting to know yeah. each other. And, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, but it was funny because when, he was over only there for just a couple of days. And, of course, I took him to my favorite sushi house. And yeah, yeah. Um, he he almost died. He thought, I, I can't eat this. I'm not going to be able to survive. Where's my meatloaf? So that was really a fun experience. But we finally found some, some dish that he could eat. And that's pretty much, he, he pretty much ate uh, pork and rice the mm-hmm. whole time he was there. So there you go. he survived. Yeah, yeah. Did you use your photography in terms of, how to tell a story, or is it more to express your creativity? So tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about your photography endeavors. Well, you know, what happened was um, I got over there, and I was in the photo lab, and lo and behold, I was the only woman in the photo lab. Mm -hmm. And, you know, remembering again, this is the 70s, so um, (laughs) they guess what they did with me. You know, they've got, you've got, uh, I'm working with, you know, five or six other men in the lab. Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, good, we finally got a girl. Put her out on the front desk, and she can work the reception and intake. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. that was pretty much the last time I picked up a camera. Uh, I was pretty much put out on the front desk and dealt with the uh a clerical part of working in a photo lab. And, um, but I did, you know, living in Japan, of course, I, I got my Nikons right away. And, right. and it was just more or less a hobby. And I just took advantage of living in that beautiful country with the colors and the culture and, and uh, just took, uh, you know, pictures for my own, for my own use. But mm-hmm. to be very honest with you, um, as I said, it looked like it would be a fun thing to be involved in, but it wasn't a love that I had. And right. really my goal in life, I'm, I didn't really ever have a occupation in mind that I wanted besides being a mother. I really wanted mm-hmm. to be a mother. And so when my husband and I got married and we got stationed back or we were back in Japan and living our lives and beginning our lives together, our goal was to start a family. That's really what I wanted to do and and I wanted to be and I wanted to devote my time to um, having children and and just having a family. So we um, we we got busy trying to trying to make that all happen. And it actually didn't happen right away, which was very interesting for me. And um, Mm -hmm. it uh, it it was almost a year uh, before we were able to start our family. And what happened was, again, I got a, a letter from my mom saying that my dad um, had been, um, they found a lump and he had been diagnosed mm-hmm. with lymphoma and he was only given six months uh, to live. And I was able to file paperwork to get a medical uh, discharge a little bit early. I was supposed to be mm-hmm. discharged in uh, January and I was able to get discharged in October so that we could fly home and be with my dad. And, um, as it turned out, he had stage four lymphoma and, as I mentioned, was only given six months to two years to live. Wow. And he started going through the therapy that was needed. And, um, you know, he actually lived for another 40 years. And um, 
he just died last year after going through uh, treatments over over his lifetime from that from 73 74 on until he just died last year different you know he would get chemotherapy and then he would go into remission and then mm-hmm. it would come back five years later and he would get treatment but he was really watched over and his life was extended and it was a blessing for sure but we got out of the military uh, under a medical hardship and mm-hmm. um, flew home and when we were um, we stopped off in, in California to be with my parents and and while I was there I said to my mom gosh you know I don't feel good I I don't know why but your swimming pool the smell of chlorine is just making me sick and I just oh boy I just don't feel good at all and so we got back to Portland and uh, I went to the doctor saying boy I, I just don't feel good and they said well I, it's because you're pregnant and um, you have morning sickness and I was like oh a good thing and so that that kind of you know finally we were able to start our family and our first uh son was born in 1976 and mm-hmm. i always tell people they'll say well what did you know what kind of fun did you have in your 20s i said well i was pretty <laughs> much pregnant for 10 years because i have six kids and they're anywhere <laughs> from 18 months to two years apart so that's what i did in my 20s <laughs> i had a great family so we ended up with um uh, four boys and two girls, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I actually ended up selling my cameras because I soon found mm-hmm. that you know once the instant camera uh, came into popularity, I found that as a mom I couldn't really um, do the birthday party, um, handle the um, you know the pinata, and take right. pictures at the same time. So it was, it was almost like here's your birthday <laughs> present, grab the camera, click click click. Okay, here's your take. Okay, grab the camera. And so I kind of put <laughs> photography way in the back and just put right. all my attention into being a mom. So that's right. kind of how that worked out. Yeah. Very interesting. You have six children, and uh-huh. it boils down to the very last one, TJ, a beautiful uh-huh. yep. son. So tell us yep. the story about TJ and sort of that changes your trajectory in life, your mission in life, and turn out to be something beautiful and wonderful that you're sharing with the world. So tell us the story about TJ, please. Well, y- you, you describe it perfectly. Um, we had five children, and I had all five of those children. My first three were born at a natural uh, uh, clinic with a naturopath as my physician, a natural childbirth, uh, no medical intervention, and came home right away and that's just kind of how I did it. And I just was built to have babies, and it worked out really well. And I had, you know, both all, my boys were all eight-pounders, and my girls were six- and seven-pound healthy babies. And it's just I just thought, oh, I got this down. We're going to have eight kids. This is easy. You know, th- I was born mm-hmm. to do this. And, and um, <clears throat> so then when with my uh, last pregnancy – I started to have really doubts about, you know, I thought maybe maybe six is going to be our number because I'm really having doubts about having any more children. And my oldest was only nine, and I started to think, boy, I don't know, maybe maybe this is a lot. And, you know, I started to kind of question how many. And I, and I, and I, I really feel as though I was receiving promptings, letting me know that this was going to be our last child and, and that I mm-hmm. needed to be prepared for what was coming. But nothing medically, uh, you know, I did, um, I did measure very large in the very beginning. And I had a doctor who said to me, boy, you know, you're measuring very large. Um, I don't know. Well, we'll just keep an eye on you. And, and um, you know, I found out later that one of the signs of a problem is an an excessive amount of amniotic fluid. And it came to be that that's exactly what I had, Uh, which if if the doctor would have been a little bit more attentive, he would have done a a little bit more research to find out why I was measuring so large and perhaps done an ultrasound. But, you know, back in the 80s, they weren't really doing ultrasounds as commonly Mm -hmm. as they do today. And they just relied on on their own intuition. And so there wasn't a lot of... um, care that I think should have been done ahead of time. And so when I went into labor with him, um, I suddenly had a large, I I just had a huge 
massive uh, bleeding and I ended up, mm. you know, being rushed to emergency and yeah. they couldn't figure out why I was hemorrhaging so severely. And so they finally said, you know what, we're just going to do an emergency cesarean, which was totally not what, how I had babies. And it was funny because at one point the doctor said, uh, you know, we're going to put a fetal monitor to see if the baby's in, in stress. And I said, oh, I don't do fetal monitors. I, I, I have natural childbirth. And he said, lady, I don't think you understand what's going on here. There's, we, we're, in, we're in trouble. And I was like, really? Mm-hmm. I was just so optimistic because <laughs> I was just so used to doing it yeah. my old regular way. And right. so, you know, they ended up doing an emergency cesarean. I was under general anesthesia. And when I came to, my husband informed me that um, we had a boy, but mm-hmm. he um, had some problems. He was uh, diagnosed with what they call a diaphragmatic hernia which means he had a hole in his diaphragm. And so the hole had allowed other organs uh, to intestines and things like that to kind of slip. And they were laying in the chest cavity, which didn't give his lungs a chance to develop. And so one of his lungs was pretty developed, but the other one was still just a tiny little lung bud. And Mm -hmm. so immediately after he was born, he was um, not breathing and they would give him oxygen. He would pink up, but they would take away the oxygen and he would go blue. And so they knew immediately they brought in uh, x-ray. They did the x-ray. They could see the diaphragmatic hernia and immediately he was taken away and they brought him to me in an incubator and they said, you know, we're going to rush him up to Oregon health science university. Uh, We're going to be doing surgery uh, there's only a 20% chance that he's going to survive. So we would just want to give you a chance to at least see him before mm-hmm. we take him away. And this was just, as I mentioned, so foreign to what I was used to. I, I had my right. babies, they were in my arms and they never left my arms from the time. So this was just, I was in shock and, and not used to what they were telling me or how to handle this situation. So he ended up being taken to one hospital. I was still left in the other hospital Uh, recovering from a cesarean and so not able to go up and see him. I had five other children at home. Uh, My family was still living in the Midwest. And um, so it was a very scary, scary time. Mm -hmm. And it really kind of woke us up to um, the reality. And it started in motion the uh, kind of a preview of coming attractions of how our life was going to be changed. But, Mm -hmm. you know, ignorance is bliss. And um, we still didn't even understand to the extent of his um, physical problems. And mm-hmm. right before we brought him home from the hospital, he, they did an EEG and they, they, um, they reported back that there was brain injury and mm-hmm. that he was at a very high risk of having uh, cerebral palsy. And I had no idea what that even was or right. didn't even know you know, what to expect. And I, I remember, you know, one of the things about being up at a teaching hospital like uh, OHSU is you work with a lot of young um, up and coming doctors. And mm-hmm. so uh, I was always surrounded by, by students and, and residents. And, and so they would ask me questions. And I remember asking them one day when he was <laughs> laying in his incubator and he has tubes coming out and things attached to him. And I remember turning to these young residents and saying, is there a possibility he might have a slight learning disability because of this? And mm-hmm. They kind of looked at me like, again, lady, are you even aware of what's going on? <laughs> I mean, I was, just, I was just so clueless that, you know, anything yeah. bad happened because things had just kind of gone very scripted in my life. Sure. And, um, sure. I really felt as though I was in charge up to this point. And for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, my husband and I realized we're not in charge. And yeah. life is going to happen. Whether, whether we like it or not, this is what happens. This is called life. And mm-hmm. um, so we finally you know, brought our baby home with, a, with no real diagnosis at all, just kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a warning to keep our eyes open that there was a, a, a huge possibility that he would have cerebral palsy. And we struggled for um, probably eight or nine months, uh, you know, not, not thriving, mm-hmm. uh, difficult mm-hmm. uh, eating, uh, didn't sleep, um, very, very difficult time in our life. As I mentioned, I had 
you know, five other children to take care of and a baby that wasn't sleeping or eating or growing or gaining weight or or, um, anything, not meeting any milestones whatsoever, and Mm -hmm. doctors who weren't giving me answers. And, um, you know, I have to give a huge shout-out and recognition to uh, the United Cerebral Palsy Organization because they saved my life, basically. I I gave them a call. I said... um, can you send me some information? I, I don't know if my son has cerebral palsy, but um, something is wrong. Something is mm-hmm. wrong, and I'm not getting any answers. And they sent me a packet, and in the packet were signs to look for, uh, mm-hmm. things that might uh, – warning signs. And one of the things, which I thought was very odd, one of the things that they mentioned was that they didn't smile, and they didn't react emotionally. And I was mm-hmm. like – well, that's interesting because he was eight months old and still didn't make uh, – we couldn't really get a good eye contact and he wasn't smiling or reacting to play or, or anything like that. And, gosh, by this time he should be sitting up and, you know, mm-hmm. starting to mm-hmm. crawl or something like that. And so uh, the, uh, one of the other things that was on the list was a list of doctors who were um, – experienced with cerebral palsy and so we made an appointment at good samaritan hospital in portland Mm -hmm. took him Mm -hmm. to one of the physicians and he looked at him just in my arms and said well i can tell you right now he has cerebral palsy just by looking at him but let me evaluate him and i will i will tell you you know how how uh how severely he's affected and so Mm -hmm. We left him with the doctor, and we came back into the waiting room, and and he said, "I I really I really hate to tell you this, but he is severely affected with cerebral palsy." And um, and my husband and I looked at each other, and we said, "Well, that's good to know." And they were like, mm. "He was like, um, again, you don't seem to be re- reacting the way I would expect you to." And I said, well, yeah. "You know what? We've been struggling for eight months." To, to wonder to find out what was wrong and you've just given us a title and a label that we can now use to get the help that we need and right. so with that diagnosis we were able to immediately begin physical therapy and speech therapy and and um, treat his inability to eat and everything that was going on now had a label and that gave us the tool that we needed to get the help that we needed and um, that definitely began a new, as you mentioned, trajectory into mm-hmm. how our life was going to go in medical appointments, doctor's appointments, physical therapy, speech therapy. And um, it definitely set our lives on a different path for sure. Thank you so much for sharing such intimate detail about your experience with TJ. I really appreciate it mm-hmm. very much. By the way, mm-hmm. you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest is Renee Stillman. She is the president of the Stillman Family Foundation. Renee and I are having a conversation about her life and mission and how to use faith, humor, and inspiration to help mothers who struggle with life challenges. So fast forward a few years, obviously, going through the process that has been challenging you and your family and mm-hmm. pretty much changed your family's trajectory in life in some mm-hmm. ways. Why did mm-hmm. you decide to set up the Stillman Family Foundation? Well, I really appreciate you asking me that question because, you know, my husband and I really truly believe that um, the best way to handle life situations is through service. And mm-hmm the more that you look around and, and, and realize that you're not the only person with problems and that you might have strengths that, that other people don't have and that other people have strengths that you don't have, um, it really helps you to deal with um, these kind of situations. And so one of the things that we recognized right away was that uh, having a child in a wheelchair kind of, restricts where you can go and what you can do. And for the first, gosh, almost 11 years of our life, we would pick him up and put him in his car seat and then pick up his wheelchair and put that in the back of the car. And one of the, um, one of the advantages, if you can call it mm-hmm. an advantage, to cerebral palsy is a lot of times these kids are very thin. 
um, their muscles are, are, are tight and bound and they're working, you know, 24 seven. Mm-hmm. And so they burn mm-hmm. a lot of calories. So no matter what they're eating or what their calorie intake is, they're usually very thin. And so he was able, I was able to physically pick him up and carry him for a long time, but he grew and there came a time when I no longer could pick him up uh, and he grew out of a car seat and he grew out of, you know, what normal children would be sitting in a booster chair. And it was time for him mm-hmm. to just be sitting in a, a regular seat. And I said to my husband, I can't do this anymore. His wheelchair is too big. It doesn't fit in the back of the car and I can't lift it any longer. And I'm having a hard time lifting him. And what are we going to do? And so we went shopping to see how much would it cost to buy a wheelchair accessible vehicle. And so we, we looked around and we were absolutely shocked at the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, they were dollars $65,000, $65,000. And this was for a minivan. And, right. you know, I mean, I, I wanted to see Maserati somewhere on there. If I'm going to pay $75,000 <laughs> for a car, doggone it, it should at least be a Mercedes, you know. Right, and right. we were absolutely shocked. And so it we got the stripped-down, bare-necessities vehicle that was available in you know the early 90s and um that was our very first car and we we recognized how um you you know a car that has been adapted Mm -hmm. is going to increase your um uh, ability or it's going to increase the possibility that something's going to go wrong with your car and there were times when we would be someplace and oh the remote control door wouldn't work and the ramp wouldn't come down or some electrical thing would happen and we would be stuck and there's just a lot of complications and we just kind of learned this was a hardship and if there was ever a time in our life where we could help other families to purchase accessible vehicles doggone it we were going to do it because you know we were fortunate enough to start out with that basic car and then a few years later trade that in and maybe get a little bit better car that didn't have so many electrical problems and then a little bit later we could actually get a car that the ramp just came down with the push of a button and the door flew open it was like this is beautiful and and you know we were able to do that Mm -hmm. fully as Mm -hmm. as my husband moved up in his employment and and um so it's a, it's a definite financial burden, and yet if you have a child that is a wheelchair user, you don't have an option. You either stay home or you have a vehicle that will allow you to mm-hmm. get your son or daughter in the car with their chair. And mm-hmm. so um, we, we kind of waited and waited until there was finally a time in our life. Our children are all through college. They're married. Um, my husband retired. And so two years, almost two years, be two years in January, we started the Steelman Family Foundation with the main emphasis in helping other families purchase wheelchair accessible vehicles. And um, we've, so far, we've uh, able to help almost 12 families in just uh, two years. And the great, yeah, and the, the most rewarding part of the foundation is helping families who, well, first I would say probably my military families that we've been able to help. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I have, a, of course, a place in my heart for the military families because, you know, they're already isolated. A lot of times they're stationed right. places far away from family and they have medical benefits, which are beautiful, but they may, may not have access. There may be another part of the country that would serve their child better but they're stationed over here and so they Mm -hmm. sometimes don't have access to the care that they need and a lot of times you know military families don't usually have huge trust funds and they don't usually Mm -hmm. have you know grandma and grandpa that's going to give them twenty thousand dollars for christmas that they can use to go buy a car Um, there's a reason that they're in the military and they're in a fixed income and a lot of times dads are deployed and and the the dads or the moms are are serving in, in, in active duty and somebody's left at home by themselves to take care of this disabled child and other children. And so I really have a place in my heart for military families. And so far over a third of our families have been military families that we've been able to help uh, get a car. Mm-hmm. But um, some of the families that we've been able to help 
um, a lot. I work with a specific, I work with uh, performance mobility almost exclusively. It's a, a company that has, they have, gosh, I think over 29 um, offices throughout the country at this point, but um, we love to work with them because they're so good at serving um, the community. When a, a family comes in, they find out what they, what their needs are uh, financially, what they're able to afford and they then mm-hmm. they'll search their database and find a car throughout the country that will serve them. And a lot of times we've been able to, to totally finance maybe a twelve or $15,000 vehicle that's a used vehicle, but it gives this family the opportunity to finally be independent, to take their child with them on outings, to get to doctor's appointments. Um, it's just been absolutely the most rewarding thing we've ever done. Very interesting. What's the long-term vision for the foundation? Well, eventually, as I mentioned, we would love to be able to serve families throughout the nation. And we, we, one of the uh, most heartwarming applications that I've received was from a, a young mother in Oklahoma who mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. A, a caseworker. And she actually ended up adopting one of the children that she was working with the, mm-hmm. She was uh, the child was a victim of a drowning accident, and the mother uh, of the child was a drug addict and wasn't a good caregiver. The child was living with a grandparent who was older and didn't really know how to care for the child. And this care worker just fell in love with this little girl and ended up adopting her. And she, you know, applied for a grant and asked if we could help them, you know, get a van. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it just, it killed me. I was like, I want so badly to help you. But, you know, we're a small foundation at this point. And the greatest thing for us would be to be recognized by the beautiful, wonderful corporations that are out there that are so, they they devote a lot of their income and to mm-hmm. different organizations throughout the country. But and but it's frustrating. One of the things we found is a lot of times the larger don- donors they want to contribute to larger foundations that have recognition. Right. right. And right. so donating to a small foundation that doesn't give them the public notoriety that they desire, uh, mm-hmm. they don't really want to do that. So the the biggest thing for me is to get our name out there to let people know what we're doing, and that we are a 501c3. We are recognized by the IRS. And, you know, we are a bona fide uh, charity, and the more donations that we get and the more partners that we can partner with, I see Mm -hmm. this foundation growing and serving so many people. And, you know, right now we have to limit our grants to families Mm -hmm. who have children between the ages of 3 and 18. And Mm -hmm. we would love to expand that if we could. Um, but financially, we're small. We're we're growing, and but that's our dream. That's our goal is to be able to serve older uh, children and um, other people who are wheelchair users, and um, that's our goal is to just see it grow and to serve more and more people. Wonderful. One of the things that you've done, you have obviously accomplished quite a bit in a couple of years. So tell us some of the success stories. I'm not sure if you can share the names of these families, but it's up to you. If you would like to do a shout out to them, that's fine with me. But I know you have experienced tremendous amount of success with some families. Well, you know, we really have. And I think one of the funnest things we've done is one of the last military families that we gave to um, a real perfect example of how the community needs to work together and how we can't do this by ourselves. We got a request, we got an application from a a mom who um, has a child that is a victim of uh, shaken baby syndrome. And um, her husband was in the military and serving and was currently is stationed in Utah. And she applied for a grant. We called and we talked and, and she had, because they had been stationed in other areas of the country, they had been given some money. Uh, by uh, some other uh, churches back east when they were stationed back, uh, I think they were stationed back in North Carolina, and they had received some funds from them. They were hanging on to them, and and she had been doing some fundraising herself, and so she had a little bit of money from that. But they moved into this new area as her husband received a new station, and so they were living in this small town in Utah. And uh, a neighbor came over and said, uh, I just want to introduce you and welcome you to the neighborhood. And uh, Jennifer said, told him a little bit about her family. 
And this, this neighbor went home and could not get this family out of her mind. And she went to her congregation, Snow Canyon, Utah, and mm-hmm. talked to her um, uh, ecclesi- ecclesiastical leader and said, I want to help this family. I want to have a spaghetti feed. And I want to do a fundraising dinner for this family. And mm-hmm. her bishop said, do it. I'm all for it. I, I 100% support you. So this neighbor organized a spaghetti feed and mm-hmm. raised over $12,000 for this family. And, wow. and so between that contribution, the little bit they had gotten from a church back in North Carolina, and then they, they came to us and mm-hmm. we, you know, we said, absolutely, put us on your team. We're going to be there for you. And then one of the coworkers of, this, uh, of the, the father, um, he told the Utah Jazz about what what they mm-hmm. were doing and the utah jazz stepped in they donated nine thousand dollars and so with everyone working together we were yeah. able to give this family a van for the first time they drove they threw everybody in the car as a family they were able to drive go to disneyland they had a wonderful vacation together and you know we can't do this by ourselves as i mentioned we're a small right. fo- foundation we need the community we need everyone to participate and mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, the, another great story is we had a, a family. I had one of the uh, managers of the Performance Mobility in Sandy, Utah, call me and say, um, I have a used van here. I have a purple minivan that nobody wants. <laughs> and I just happened to have a family that came in. They have a daughter, and purple is her favorite color. And they don't have a lot of money but they can afford this purple used van if you guys could step in and help. And I said, well, how much do you need? And she said, $11,000. And I said, done. We wrote out Mm -hmm. a check and that family drove away in a purple minivan. um, Absolutely as happy as they could be in their Barney mobiles, what they call it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but, But, you know, it's a used van. It's got miles on it, but it's been totally gone through uh, the company made sure that it was running and everything was functioning properly. Um, and that's, that's what we love doing is mm-hmm. helping families that, um, you know, they're not, we're not going to help families that already have 45,000 and they were wondering if we could throw in another 20 to get that right, new right. town and country. That's not what we're about. You know, right, we're about right. helping families get into what they can afford, what they can maintain themselves. And, um, what they need to get their family to be able to be together and to do the things mm-hmm. they need to do. Fantastic. When did you decide to write Heaven Sent and Ben? Well, I had a blog, and uh, last year I really wanted to get the message out because, you know, we're a, I have a great kids. My kids are so, you know, with, with TJ being the youngest, being the baby of the family, he had wonderful brothers and sisters that included him in their life. I have, I'm sitting here at my desk and I have a picture of my daughter and my son. He was actually um, on the homecoming court when he was a freshman in high school. And my daughter flew mm-hmm. home from college to be his escort at the homecoming. And, but that's what his high school did. They recognized him as being a part of their school and they included him. And, and um, you know, I have great stories that my, his older brother, the, the, the son right above TJ, you know, he would take him and go out with his friends and include him. And he loved, you know, in high school, all the people would walk by and they all knew him because his brothers played football and his sisters were on cheerleading squad. And he was just part of the part of the family, part of the school because of his brothers and sisters. And um, so we we put on a good front. You know, we look like we don't have any problems. We We all show up and we're there and we're happy. But I wanted people to know that you know, I have bad days and I have days when I wake up and I say, you know, I have a 31 year old that I'm getting up and I'm bathing every day and I'm mm-hmm. packing a, a, a diaper bag and I'm finding a babysitter for, and my husband and I, you know, my husband's retired, you know, we should be in the golden years of our life. We have our health, um, but we have a child that we're still yeah. taking care of and it's hard. And some days I wake up and I go, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be 63 years old taking care of a, a, a baby, basically. 
yeah. fed, you know, diapered, uh, bathed, everything that you would do to take care of a baby is what I do for my 31-year-old son. And mm-hmm. so I wanted people to know that, you know, I have good days and I have bad days, and this is hard. But the days that I'm bathing him and the days that I take care of him, I just can't help but love him. And you learn to love through service. And what he's done for our family is taught our kids, his brothers and sisters, they've learned to look outside themselves, and they've learned to help and serve other people. I now have a daughter who has a son that's autistic, and mm-hmm. she learned because she has a brother uh, with a severe disability. She, When she got that diagnosis that her son was autistic, she knew she's going to handle this. I know how to take care of this because... I my my family showed me how to handle challenges in life, and um, you know my other daughter lost her husband in a car accident when she was pregnant with her second child, but she learned how to handle it because this is what our family does. We take life and we go okay, you know. They, yeah. There's an old saying out there that man makes a plan and God laughs, mm-hmm. and. That's the reality. You think you are in control of your life, but you're not. And But you have to be proactive. You have to be the person that says, okay, what am I going to do to make this work? And, you know, sometimes we don't have a choice, but we have to be as proactive as we possibly can be. So the blessings that beautiful. he's given to us, yeah, is, is, is more than the burden that – the physical burden that he does – uh, give our family is way over overshadowed by the blessings and the love that he's brought to our family. So true. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio, a podcast available on Apple's iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Renee Stillman. She's the president of the Stillman Family Foundation. Renee and I are having a conversation about her life and mission and how to use faith, humor, and inspiration to help mothers who struggle with life's challenges. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Renee, did you find writing the book therapeutic for you? It, it really was. And, you know, I've gotten responses from people that I think were a little shocked at how honest I was in the book and how <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know how to not be honest. I, I, I have, I'm one of those people that will tell you everything. You know, I, I, I don't have any shame, I guess. And I don't try to hide our families. You know, we're just human and we, we have right. good things and bad things. And, and um, so I was very honest in the book and I've had a lot of people that have responded back and, you know, I've had one, one gentleman say, wow, um, you didn't, you didn't try to hide anything. And I said, no, nope, <laughs> I didn't. I just told it how it is, you know? And, and then I've had other people write me letters and say, it was so refreshing to finally read exactly what they were feeling that, you know, there's some days when you don't want to do this anymore and Mm -hmm. it causes marital conflict. You know, I, my life definitely changed. Um, My husband was working and, and, you know, his life didn't necessarily change because he still got up and went to work um, because he's the supporter and the breadwinner of our, of our family. And so a lot of the care for this child fell, falls on my shoulders and that was a burden and there was a lot of resentment and you know there's there's ups and downs 80 there's a statistic out there that 85% of families with disabilities get divorced because of the stress yeah. and, the, and the strain yeah. and um, it does bring a lot of financial problems and time issues and responsibility issues and there's it brings a lot of conflict I'm sure my children my other five children will tell you that there were times when they felt as though their needs weren't met, um, mm-hmm. and that brings moms, you know, go crazy trying to meet everybody's needs. But I addressed all of that in my book, and I so my my goal was really to just be honest and to let people know that, yeah, this is hard, and yeah, I don't like it sometimes, and it's okay. It's okay mm-hmm. to say this isn't, you know, sometimes we'll hear, oh, but it's a blessing, and oh, it's so wonderful, and it is. But you also have to recognize this is really hard, and sometimes I don't want to do this anymore. And so that was my goal, was to give people uh, um, an allowance to be able to express their feelings and not be judged. And so it it was therapeutic from that standpoint. And, you know, I also talk about 
not just TJ, but just the, being a mom, being a mom to right. all six of my children. And, you know, one of the things that I will not do is I will not wear a T-shirt that says I'm a cerebral palsy mom. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am so offended by those, those statements because <laughs> I have six children, you know, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. I, and all my children have weaknesses and they have strengths. And right. they, have, they all came to earth with their own little personalities. And you mother each one of those children differently. And if you sit down with, and I'm sure every parent will tell you, if you sit down with your children, they will all tell you different versions of their childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and you're thinking, well, right. in fact, I don't know if we have time, but I have a funny story with my two oldest boys. Um, we went to a teacher conference. They were both in middle school and they're, they're two years apart. And so we went to our, our um, oldest son's teacher conference. And he said to me, you know, we have another Steelman in the school. Are they related? And I said, oh, yeah, they're brothers. Those are my two sons. And he said, mm-hmm. huh, from the same marriage? And I said, <laughs> yep, because they're so night and day. These two boys are so mm-hmm. different from each other. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, the same parents, the same house. But you know, even teachers were like, those those two kids are both yours and we're like, yep, they are. <laughs> so, you know, any parent will tell you that, you know, you, your kids come with their own personalities and, and you kind of have to adapt. But <laughs> Right. Right. So, yeah. So true. How does faith play into your daily life? You know, faith is probably the thing that has kept this family together. It really has mm-hmm. because we have, my husband and I have a strong commitment to our marriage, to our family, and and to our faith. And those are the three things that have stayed constant uh, throughout all of the changes that are going to happen. You have to have something that stays consistent. And, you know, attending, uh, attending a, a church regularly, um, renewing your commitment to, to what is the most important thing in your life, um, you know, I, I get a kick out of people that will tell you, you know, you have to exercise every day and you have to eat properly every day. Uh, you can't just do it once a week or you can't just do it once a month. You have to do it daily, at least 30 minutes a day. But then when you talk to them about attending a church or going to church meetings, they'll go, oh, I don't need to do that. I, I can, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and I think, well, you know, your soul is the same as your body and it needs to be fed every day and it needs to be worked out every day. And so our faith teaches us that. And mm-hmm. it's constantly, you, you know, we go to our, our, our meetings and we're constantly told, you know, this is the purpose and, and we're on earth to learn something and service is so important and uh, donating your time and your money to helping mm-hmm. others is what's important. And this is how my children were raised. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I'm not surprised when I find out that my son, my son and my daughter live in Corpus Christi, Texas, and we happened to fly down there uh, right in time for the hurricane to hit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, we ended up having to evacuate Corpus Christi and go to San Antonio. And mm-hmm. my son-in-law, um, the first thing he did was get in his truck and go around and start serving other families and finding out what the needs are for other families. And my daughter was on the phone finding out who needed to have help with putting up barricades on the windows and things like that, because that's what our faith taught us. That's what our family grew up, you know, learning how to do. And, you know, my, all my kids, you know, my daughter's constantly babysitting for other people, other moms, and both my boys, you know, they have trucks and doggone it. If you have a truck, you can be guaranteed you're going to be helping somebody. And, and that's what our faith and their, you know, my, my one son always says, boy, mom, I'm always surprised that, my friends who don't know how to build a fire, but I learned how to build a fire when I was in scouting and, you know, Mm -hmm. the scouting program was done through the church. And so, you know, it just really gave us the training ground and the, what we needed to, you know, you can't raise kids by yourself. When they talk about, you need a village, you need a village. And it's good to have that village that has the same uh, morals and thoughts and, and faith that you have. And so that's what our faith gave us. And um, we could not be doing what we're doing if we, if we didn't have our faith and our, our constant renewing and teaching that we're constantly being told where our priorities should be. 
Definitely. That's true. Where can someone go to get more information about you, buy your book, and keep up with the foundation's activities? Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for asking that and giving me this opportunity. Um, www.steelmanfamilyfoundation.org is our website. You can apply for a grant. We also offer a scholarship uh, for young uh, students who are planning on going into some kind of a career that serves children. Uh, We offer scholarships for that. So that application is on the website. You can donate on our website. Um, And my book is available through Amazon, of course. Um, You can get it in a Kindle version or you can get a paperback. You can also order it off of the website as well. So I would say Heaven Sent and Bent, you can get that on Amazon and go to our website. You can also purchase the book on the website as well. And um, contact us. I have a Facebook page for Stillman Family Foundation, and you can get a hold of me through that. And, um, yeah, all the phone numbers and information are on that website. Wonderful. What advice do you have for families who have loved ones diagnosed with cerebral palsy? Well, you know, cerebral palsy is a spectrum disorder. It's, uh, it's mm-hmm. not curable. It doesn't, you know, once the brain damage has, has happened, it's not going to change. But physically, the kids will change just because of their uh, muscular issues. And um, everyone's story is different. My son is severely physically um, affected, uh, his entire body all four regions of his body are affected, and he's extremely, uh, he's nonverbal, um, complete wheelchair user, doesn't feed himself. But, this, but, but other than that, he's relatively healthy. He's never had seizures. Uh, he's not on a lot of medication. I have other families that have children that have been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, and they have huge medical issues. So I would say the most important thing is don't, you know, we're not all the same. You can't lump mm-hmm. us all into one basket. Everybody has, is dealing with something different. Um, and it's important to find out, you know, more if you have friends or family, find out individually what their needs are and don't compare them to maybe somebody else. You know, I have a lot of people that will say to me, oh, I have a, I have a cousin who has cerebral palsy. He just graduated from high school and got a job. And I'm like, uh-huh. Well, that's not really the same as what we're dealing mm-hmm. with, but the diagnosis has, has the same label, but it's not the same. So we're not the same. And so the most important thing is, is to not lump everybody under one category uh, and to just find out what people's needs are. If there's something that you can do, if you can help a mom, maybe watch kids for a little bit so that she can run her child to a doctor's appointment or anything just find out what their needs are and if you can step in and help i would also really encourage people to um, donate to the united cerebral palsy and the steelman family foundation and other organizations you know cerebral palsy because it's not curable doesn't often get the recognition that it deserves there isn't really Mm -hmm. anything that they're going to change after that diagnosis has been done um so and and also it's not a it's not a romantic disease you know, we don't have cute little kids, you know, getting chemotherapy that can appeal mm-hmm. to you off of a, you know, it's um, sometimes it's not pretty. And um, and so it doesn't get the recognition. But just because it's not curable doesn't mean that there aren't needs that need to be met. And financially, if I could encourage people to donate, what United Cerebral Palsy does to, for people is amazing. Helps them, you know, get to doctor's appointments, helps helps people find occupation, find housing, everything that they do, uh, information just like me, when you just get that diagnosis and you're in shock, you know, they really help out. And then, um, you know, we help families, not just with cerebral palsy, muscular uh, dystrophy, all kinds of problems. Um, Mm -hmm. So we don't just help families with cerebral palsy, but when you have a child who is completely dependent on a wheelchair, um, the needs are so great. And so I would really encourage people to, to use their donation money and help uh, in that area. If I, if I could put out a shout-out, that would be my shout-out. <laughs> Wonderful. As we end the hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share mm-hmm. a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? You know, I really would. I, I would say my recipe for life would be to, number one, 
be as self-reliant as you possibly can to first look inside yourself and say, what do I need to do? And what is my responsibility in this situation? But having said that, then I would also say, and then find your team because you can't do it by yourself. You really do need a team of experts uh, to help you find the answers that you need, but you need to be the person that is proactive in that situation. And then I think second of all, I would say to think outside the box, but to remember that there might be a lot of really good things inside the box and to find out what's out there and what are, what are some programs or what are some things that are being done that you could be taking advantage of. Ask other people, talk, find out what's going on. Um, you know, the best thing you can do is talk with other families that are in your same situation and they might have things that they've discovered or programs or medications or, or even different equipment, um, walkers and braces and wheelchairs and the newest technology. So find out what's out there. Number three, I would say you've got to be able to laugh. You know, mm -hmm. we cannot be as politically restricted when we talk about our kids. You know, when I talk about my son, I laugh. You know, we talk about how he, he's, uh, he, you know, my girlfriend and I would go take him with us on places and we would say, now, TJ, the only reason why you get to come with us is because you can't tell anybody what we're talking about. <laughs> and so, you know, you've got to be able to use humor and laugh about your situation. And, you know, Halloween is my favorite holiday. And my favorite thing to do is to dress my son up as bloody and gory as I can make him set him in his wheelchair and put him right out there by the front door. And, and it's like, he gets a kick out of it, scares the bejeebies out of all the little trick or treaters. And, you know, you got to use your humor. You got to be able to laugh at, at yourself and your situation. And then also once again, last of all, the most important thing to remember is that you're not in charge that, mm -hmm. you know, life isn't going to, you don't get to plan. Sometimes life happens and um, you have to deal with it. And, and roll with the punches, as they say. So true. Renee, thank you for the wonderful recipes for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in two weeks, Tuesday morning, November 14. My guest will be Douglas Nall. He is an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, highly experienced mediator, and co-founder of The Prison of Peace Project. Douglas and I will be having a conversation about his latest and highly anticipated book, De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Renee, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. iPhone? Yeah, got it on T-Mobile. Fastest iPhone deserves America's fastest LTE network. Introducing the amazing iPhone 8. It's the best iPhone yet, now on America's best unlimited network. For a limited time, save up to $300 on the amazing iPhone 8 after 24 monthly bill credits. And now join T-Mobile's iPhone upgrade program for free. Eligible trade-in and finance agreement required. If you cancel service, you may lose promo credits. Contact us for details. Video at 480p. Small fraction of users over 50 gigs per month may have reduced speed. See store for details.